Kisses come in a multitude of varieties. They're all different kinds of kisses. There's the forehead kiss, the Eskimo kiss, the hand kiss, of course, the cheek kiss. There's the goodnight kiss, the hello kiss. Then there's that cold kiss, of course, the lingering kiss, even the holy kiss. But there is at least one other type of kiss, for in tonight's passage, we find the original Judas kiss. It's been said, a kiss is a contraction of the mouth due to an enlargement of the heart. That might be true of most kisses, but not the kiss that we'll talk about tonight. Some kisses can be feigned. Jealousy, anger, hatred can hide behind a kiss. A kiss can mask our hypocrisy. Such was the kiss that Jesus received in the Garden of Gethsemane. In Oriental culture, a kiss is like a handshake. It's a token of friendship. But Judas's kiss turned out to be a kiss of betrayal and death. With a kiss, Judas turned Jesus over to his enemies. And it all took place in a garden called Gethsemane. That's where Jesus took his disciples after they had celebrated Passover, sang their hymn, and exited the upper room. As they walked out into the night, a conversation ensued. We pick it up in verse 27. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Where is it written? In Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. This will be a crushing night for Jesus' disciples. Jesus will be crucified, and they all will stumble and forsake him. He says, but after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. Boy, you see Peter's pride, his self-assurance. Jesus said to him, assuredly I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Peter was proud. Peter was cocky. And what did Jesus promise a cocky Peter? Before the cock crowed. Before the rooster crowed twice, Peter will deny Jesus three times. Notice Peter's boast. Even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. He compares himself with the other disciples. Even if the others wimp out, Lord, I'll stand strong. I won't cave in. You can count on me. Beware of spiritual pride of putting confidence in the flesh, of believing in ourselves and in our abilities. My faith is not in my ability to stand, but in God's ability to prop me up. That's where our faith should be. At crunch time, in essence, when the rooster crows, we all tend to act like chickens. That's why we need to stand strong in the Lord, not in our own strength. Peter's going to learn. But he spoke more vehemently. If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. All the disciples were so sure of themselves. Peter particularly was devastated when he heard, "Er, 
for the second time. Jumping ahead, verse 72 tells us, when he thought about it, he wept. That's what will happen to him this night. Well, then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. Now, Gethsemane means oil press. Gethsemane was an olive grove, and it had a press that would squeeze the oil out of the olives. And it was near this press that Jesus felt incredible spiritual pressure. His soul and his spirit were crushed, literally squeezed. You know, it's interesting. In Genesis chapter 3, we're told that sin and the rule of Satan began in a garden called Eden. In Revelation chapter 22, we discover that when Jesus returns and puts an end to sin and Satan's revolt, he'll remake the earth into a beautiful garden. The story of mankind both begins and ends in a garden. And it's interesting that the turning point between the beginning and the end occurs in another garden, a garden called Gethsemane. For it was in this garden that the battle was fought and won that would end up wrestling the world from Satan's clutches and delivering it over into the hands of God. Gethsemane was the garden of decision. For it's here that Jesus overcame his pain and his hurt and his betrayal and his struggle and readied himself for the cross the next day. In the garden of Gethsemane, the father took away Jesus' cup of pain, the pain of his rejection and replaced it with his peace. The battle was not just won on the cross, but the night before. Gethsemane was Jesus' crunch time. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little farther and fell on the ground. Jesus' legs buckled. His body toppled to his knees. Jesus is carrying a heavy weight now. Luke tells us beads of perspiration streamed down Jesus' face. They had the consistency and appearance of large drops of blood. Jesus was in inexplicable agony. As Matthew said, he was exceedingly sorrowful and deeply distressed. And his prayers were not uttered in soft whispers. For according to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears. You know, it's interesting to me that the master of every situation obviously lost control of his emotions. Jesus cries, and he cries loudly. His soul is being pressed. It's being squeezed. Paradise was lost when Adam sinned in a garden. Now in this garden, Jesus is submitting to God. Obedience is gelling in his heart. Hebrews tells us that in Gethsemane, Jesus learned obedience. See, in the garden, Jesus learned how to press on even while being pressed. How to continue forward even when you feel like giving up. How to obey even when you want to abort. How to make hard choices that have painful results. Jesus learned obedience in the Garden of Gethsemane. He experienced it for himself. In verse 35, Jesus prayed that if it were possible, 
the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. What went on in Gethsemane defies our logic and our understanding. I believe this is a deep and a holy mystery. Some folks believe that Jesus was trying to avoid the cross. That he was asking God to save the world another way. After he'd asked three times and it was apparent that the cross was inevitable, he ceased from his prayer. That's how some people interpret it. But I don't think that's what happened at all. Jesus was born to die. Remember, the wise men brought him myrrh, an embalming fluid. Revelation 13 verse 8 referred to Jesus as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. According to John 17 verse 1, the cross was Jesus' moment of glory. It's what he had entered the world to accomplish. It was the moment he had looked forward to. It was the ultimate aim of his mission. Not an experience he was trying to escape or avoid. I don't believe that death was in the cup that Jesus prayed would pass from him. I believe that that cup held the pain and poison of his rejection. Jesus had watched one of his most beloved disciples walk out the door. Judas had stabbed him in the back. Jesus knew all the disciples would stumble and fail him that night. He'd even predicted Peter's awful denial. The rooster was clearing his throat as Jesus prayed. Here were Jesus' choice men, his sidekicks in whom he had invested, the treasures of his kingdom. Yet now, in his hour of need, they have abandoned him. Even as he agonizes in the garden, they're oblivious to his travail. Jesus cries out to God. He slugs it out with demons, if you will, while the disciples snooze. See, I believe the devil wanted Jesus to drink the cup that he mentions here and succumb to his feelings of rejection. Stop loving them. Stop giving. Stop sacrificing. Abort your mission. Satan whispers to Jesus, it's time for you to take care of yourself. I believe that's what was going on. How do you love friends who act like foes? How do you die for people who deny you? See, Jesus was willing to hurt all the way to heaven if necessary, but he wanted the Father to remove his pain, to take this cup of rejection from him. And I believe the Father did just that, that his feelings of rejection were replaced with an incredible peace. You know, in a lesser sense, we all pass through a Gethsemane. We all have similar experiences. How many of you have been betrayed by a friend? or gone through a painful divorce, or were terminated from a job. If you ask him, Jesus will remove your cup of hurt and replace it with his peace. But God also wants us to learn obedience, to do things God's way, even when life doesn't go our way. Jesus obeyed even when it hurt. What about you? Have you learned obedience? Well, then he came and found them sleeping. And Jesus said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. For the spirit truly is willing, but the flesh is weak. Oh, how we're all painfully and embarrassingly aware of that truth, the truth of that statement. 
How often have we knelt to pray and to seek God only to fall asleep? I have. Jesus sums up the disciples' dilemma in ten words. The spirit truly is willing, but the flesh is weak. My spirit has been redeemed. I have a love for God and a love for others that God has given to me. And in doing God's will, you know, I rejoice in the goodness that he's brought to my life. My spirit is alive. The spirit is willing. But the difficulty becomes my spirit requires the cooperation of my flesh in order to obey. And that's where my problems lie. In the flesh. For I have a lazy body and contrary habits and corrupt thoughts and a negative outlook at times. The spirit is willing, but there's a part of me that's as weak as water. The flesh. And that's why at crunch time, you and I, like Jesus, we need to rely on the Father's strength, not our own. Well, verse 39. Again, Jesus went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. Then he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. Usually we say, Three strikes and you're out. But aren't you glad that's not what Jesus said to his disciples? Well, Jesus will give them a second chance. He is the Lord of grace and mercy. He is the God of another chance. Jesus concludes, though, the hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise up, let us go. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Jesus had just risen from his knees. His agony was over. The cup of rejection and hurt that had been so heavy had now been removed. There's now a peace in Jesus' heart, a resolve in his mind. His nerves are steel. His will is set. Love for humanity and the Father's glory are his motivations. On his knees in the garden, Jesus prayed and he won the victory that will be played out before the priests and in Pilate's judgment hall and on Calvary's cross. But no sooner does Jesus rise from his knees than an angry mob appears with burning torches and angry voices. It's made up of temple guards with billy clubs and Jewish dignitaries in priestly robes. In front of a pack, in front of the pack is a familiar face. Psalm 41 verse 9 is prophetic. It quotes Messiah in advance. Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. The prophecy was speaking of Judas. Judas Iscariot followed Jesus for three years, but now he leads him to his execution. Now his betrayer had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Take him and lead him away safely. Now remember chapters 14, the first two verses, the Jews were looking for a way to arrest Jesus without starting a riot, and Judas was their answer. Judas knew where Jesus would be spending the night. Judas could identify Jesus. The Jews would arrest Jesus under the cover of darkness. He'd be in Roman custody by daybreak. By mid-morning, Jesus would be crucified. All 
without the gaze of the common folk who had followed him. I've often wondered, though, why did the Jews hire Judas? Why did they need Judas? Surely there were men in their own ranks who could have picked Jesus out of a crowd. I mean, it would have saved them 30 pieces of silver. Jews care about that. And why did, Ju- G- why did Judas choose to identify Jesus with a kiss of all things? A kiss. A kiss in any culture is a symbol of affection or friendship. I've concluded that Judas's kiss was part of Satan's strategy to keep Jesus off the cross. You know that's what he wanted. To keep him off the cross. For a kiss, the kiss of a friend is a a kiss from a friend, a betrayal kiss from a friend is a dagger in your back. I mean, it's an attack on your heart. Satan wanted to pry Jesus off the cross by nursing this hurt and this resentment. Satan, in essence, was saying, forget the cross. Why die for people who've betrayed you and deny you even with a kiss? The good news is is that Satan's attempts were fruitless. Jesus won the battle in the garden. He prayed for the Father to take the cup of rejection from him, and the Father did. So, as soon as Judas had come, immediately he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now an impulsive disciple reacted to the arrest. He drew his sword on one of the guards. I'm sure he went for his head. He wanted to split his skull in half. But at the last second, the guard ducked and the sword clipped off his ear. Luke 22 verse 51 tells us that Jesus picked off the lopped off lobe and reattached it to the man's head. A miracle. A miracle of mercy. Jesus heals even his arresting officer. How's that for love? Now, it's interesting, the last miracle that Jesus worked while on earth has had to be repeated countless times since. Think this through. He heals a wound inflicted by one of his followers. It's sad, but a free-swinging saint with a sharp sword can do much harm. Hebrews refers to the Bible as a two-edged sword. That means that a person motivated by anger or jealousy or revenge can take even the life-giving Word of God and use it to cut up another person. This is why Ephesians 6 calls the Bible the sword of the Spirit. See, our use of Scripture has to be guided by the Spirit, not by our ignorance or by our desire to win an argument or our need for revenge on someone else. No, our use of the Scripture must be guided by the Spirit of God, lest we hurt each other using even the Word, the sword of God. Notice specifically, Jesus reattaches a dismembered body part. It's tragic but true. Even well-meaning servants of the Lord can hurt people that they want to help. We can lose patience. We can misrepresent Jesus. We can lash out rather than love. Even in church work, folks get hurt inadvertently. They leave the church. They get lopped off from the body. At times, ears are flying everywhere. This is why I'm so thankful that Jesus still reattaches lopped off body parts. I know folks who've been wounded by an angry pastor, maybe a misguided saint. 
And they become disillusioned with church. But Jesus still works miracles. He can heal and reattach people to his body. Remember Mark's gospel was probably Peter's account. You remember Mark was Peter's protege. The early church believed that Mark's gospel was Peter's memoirs. This might explain why Mark doesn't identify this sword swinger. For according to John, the brother with the blade was Peter. Could be that an embarrassed Peter chose to skip over that detail in the version that he provided Mark. Well, after cleaning up Peter's mess, Jesus addresses the mob, verse 48. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you did not take me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. I love Jesus' explanation here. Jesus wasn't maneuvering behind the scenes. He had been open and honest and public about his intentions. It was the Jews hiding under a rock, sneaking around. Their nighttime lynching party here was proof. Verse 50 describes the disciples' reaction to this Judas-led mob. Then they all forsook him and fled. Imagine this. The men who had been mentored by Jesus for three and a half years said thank you to him by disappearing in the darkness. These brave disciples all tucked tail and ran. And remember their bold claims earlier that night? When Peter promised Jesus in verse 31, if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. We're told they all said likewise. Hey, if you've ever been tempted to put confidence in your flesh, in your own resolve, and boast in your efforts and your determination, remember verse 50. They all forsook him and fled. The disciples boasted that they would never deny Jesus and saw no reason to pray. While Jesus, the perfect man, cried out to his father for strength in time of need. Little wonder the disciples fold under pressure while Jesus holds it together. See, Peter and the other disciples are the classic example of what happens when you put your trust in your own strength. Jesus instead was trusting in God. Yeah, I like how one man described his dependence on God. He said, he had the strength and I had the weakness, so we teamed up. It was an unbeatable combination. We need to remember that. Now, a certain young man followed him having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body. And the young men laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. I suppose you could say this young man barely escaped. Just barely escaped. Most commentators suggest that this certain young man was the author of the gospel, Mark himself. Remember, tradition says that the Last Supper was held at Mark's house. When the disciples left, Mark must have thrown a linen sheet around him and went after them and followed them to the garden. The point Mark is making here is that Jesus was left absolutely alone. The disciples had left. Now Mark leaves. The weight of our sin, the burden of the cross came down on Jesus and on him alone. Verse 53, and they led Jesus away to the high priest. Now the high priest at the time was a man named Caiaphas. And when we piece together all four gospel accounts, we discover that Jesus was actually tried 
five times this night. First, John 18 verse 13 tells us that he was taken initially to Annas, who was the former high priest. Second, he was tried by Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. Third, once Jesus was condemned by the Jews, he was taken to the fortress of Antonio, the military headquarters of the Roman procurator at the time, Pontius Pilate. In the hands of the Romans, Jesus becomes a political hot potato. At first, Pilate wants to pass the buck, and upon hearing that Jesus is from Galilee, he shuffles him off to King Herod. Herod tries Jesus for a fourth time. But King Herod refuses to rule on the case, and he sends Jesus immediately back to Pilate for his fifth trial. Until I visited Jerusalem, I pondered how all these movements could take place in just a few short hours. I mean, geographically, from east of the Temple Mount, on the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane, to the city's western wall and Caiaphas's house, back east to the fortress of Antonio, a visit to Herod's palace in, between, palace in between, then back to the fortress. It seems all that travel would have taken a long, long time. But hey, one trip to Jerusalem for you, and it all falls into place. The entire old city is less than one square mile. You can walk from one side to the other in less than 30 minutes. In Jesus' day, the city was not much larger. You can go to Jerusalem today and retrace Jesus' steps in no more than an hour. And in the middle of the night, with the streets empty, it would take even less time. When the mob arrives at Caiaphas' house, the priest was not alone. For verse 53 tells us, And with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders and the scribes. This gathering constituted an assembly of the 70-member Sanhedrin, or the Jewish Supreme Court. These dignitaries, they knew about the arrest, and they were waiting on the mob to exercise their mock justice. You know, it's ironic that in their haste to convict Jesus, this court broke several of their own rules that night. We learn from Jewish history that, first of all, nighttime judgments were never allowed. Second, judgments were to be made in the temple, nowhere else. And third, a capital conviction and a death sentence could never be handed down on the day of Passover. The Jews broke all three rules in their conviction of Jesus. A smart defense attorney could have probably gotten Jesus' conviction overturned on a series of technicalities. Had there been one? Well, while this trial unfolds inside Caiaphas' house, Mark tells us what happens outside. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. The scene now shifts from the courtroom to the courtyard. And there's Peter again. He's followed Jesus. But notice the telling words. He followed him at a distance. And he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. Understand it was probably a cold night. Must have been. When Mark left his house, he grabbed a cloth to cover his body and kept himself warm. Now Peter is warming himself by the fire. But Peter had grown cold, not just physically, but also spiritually. See, when you lose heart, when you grow discouraged, you lose pace, you grow slack, you begin to lag behind, 
You're no longer in step with Jesus, and a distance develops between you and your Lord. And at a distance, it's more difficult to hear what he says. You're too far from him to pick up on his heartbeat. Notice Peter's progression here. First, his heart grows cold. He gets discouraged. Second, Peter follows Jesus, but at a distance. Third, Peter finds himself warming himself by the enemy's fire. And this happens to us. When our heart grows cold, when we let a distance get between us and Jesus, we turn back to the fire that the enemy stokes. We revert back to the sinful thrills that once excited us. It's sad to be gloriously delivered from sin, only to end right back at the enemy's fire. Has that happened to you? When Mark Twain was asked the reason for his success, he explained, I was born excited. And you know, if you, were, if you are a Christian tonight, you too were born excited. You are born again on fire for Jesus Christ. Yet, if a lack of prayer has set in, if self-confidence has set in, these things lead to a cold heart, to discouragement, which leads to a distant walk, which leads to the enemy's fire. If that's happened to you, you need to turn back to Jesus tonight and begin to relearn obedience. Verse 55, Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Here is the greatest trial in history. And ironically, the prosecution had no case. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. You see, the Jewish hierarchy paid people to commit perjury and lie about Jesus, but they couldn't even get their stories together, get their stories straight. According to Jewish law, no one could be condemned unless the testimony was confirmed by two or three witnesses. Well, then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. Now, remember the Jews, they revered Herod's temple. They worshipped the temple itself more than they worshipped God, in fact. They thought of tearing down the temple. Any thought of tearing down the temple would be treason to a Jew. Of course, when Jesus made this comment in John chapter 2, he wasn't talking about the literal temple. He was talking about his own body. He was the temple of God. He was God's dwelling place on the earth. When Jesus said he would rebuild the temple in three days, he was talking of his resurrection. Understand, this whole trial was a farce. Jesus is getting railroaded. It's interesting, the name Caiaphas, you know what it means? Inquisitor. The high priest presides over one of the most terrible and horrific inquisitions of all time. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. Jesus' lack of response was a fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah 53, verse 7 predicted, He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. 
Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, that is the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. This is the name that God revealed in the burning bush, from the burning bush. When Moses asked for his name, God replied, I am who I am. Now Jesus is identifying himself as the great I am. He's claiming to be God. And he goes on to say, And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. The right hand of God was his ultimate authority. And when Jesus returns a second time, he says he's coming in authority, in this authority of God. Jesus is warning this priest today, you might judge me, but when I return, I will judge you. And the Jews knew exactly what Jesus meant. He left no doubt that he was claiming to be God. For in verse 63 we read, Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be worthy of death. You know, you hear people who try to deny the deity of Jesus. It's ridiculous. Ask his enemies at the time. They all knew he was claiming to be God. That's why he was crucified. Jesus clearly claimed to be God, which was all the high priest needed to issue Jesus a death sentence. Jesus of Nazareth was a man as well as God. We saw him sweat. We saw him bleed. We've seen him sleep. But he also claimed to be God. And the Jews considered this blasphemy. See, they didn't realize that the Bible predicted, even the Old Testament predicted, that Messiah would be both, that he would be God and man. He would be the God-man. Then some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him and to say to him, prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. Now, once the death verdict was issued, this stately crew of dignified Jewish gentlemen, they go ballistic. They turn vulgar and brutal and crude and vicious. The priests become predators. They begin to spit on our Lord Jesus. They threw a coat over his head and they start punching Jesus in the face. This is vicious treatment. It's interesting, the Jewish Talmud had a really weird teaching that said Messiah could identify people by his sense of smell. Thus the Jews, they blindfold Jesus and they start striking him with their fists all the time taunting him. Hey, prove to us you're the Messiah. Tell us who's hitting you. It's hard to overstate the indignities that Jesus suffered that night. In verse 66, the scene shifts outside. Now, as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are saying. And he went out on the porch, and a rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him again and began to say to those who stood by, This is one of them. But he denied it again. Matthew 26, verse 72, records Peter's exact, exact words to the girl, I do not know the man. Notice each denial grows in force. It becomes more emphatic. 
And isn't this the way sin works? Each time you give in, each time you compromise, it's easier to repeat it the next time. It goes from worse to worse to worse. And a little later, those who stood by said to Peter again, Oh, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean, and your speech shows it. Like a true southerner, a Galilean had a distinctive accent. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. You've heard the expression, to cuss like a sailor? Where do you think the sailors learned to cuss? The fishermen. Peter had cussed out his tangled nets a thousand times. But never did he think one day he would curse the Lord he loved. And no sooner had the words left his lips, and a second time the rooster crowed. It's amazing. At the time, roosters were banned from Jerusalem. Roosters were unclean animals. Thus, to hear a rooster crow in Jerusalem was a rare and unusual experience. That's what made the sound a special sign to Peter. Verse 72. Then Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And when he thought about it, he wept. The root word is the word from which we get in English the bowels or the intestines. The idea is that Peter's guilt had churned at his stomach. He felt a gut-riching grief. He probably fell on his face and doubled over and cried convulsively. Never has anyone fallen so far, so fast as Peter. From promising to die for Jesus' sake if need be, to denying him before a campfire girl. Peter is the classic example of a man who trusted in his flesh, in his cockiness. He trusted in his own power, his own strength, his own resolve, rather than acknowledge his weakness. Peter trusted in himself rather than in God. Don't you make that same mistake. It's it's not weakness that stops God from using us. It's our failure to admit it. It's us pretending to be strong when in reality we're weak. Hudson Taylor once said, God chose me because I was weak enough. He trains somebody to be quiet enough and little enough and then uses him. See, Peter learns the hard lesson that you can never be too weak to be used by God, but... If you think you're too strong, he can't use you. Peter learns the hard lesson, but the good news is he'll be back, for Jesus will restore him. Chapter 15. Immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus, led him away, and delivered him to Pilate. Now recall, it was a rule that a capital sentence could only be issued in the light of day. So as soon as the sun peeks up over the horizon, they cast their votes, the Sanhedrin, and they send Jesus to the governor. Now Pilate had been appointed the procurator or the governor of Judea in 26 AD. And early in his tenure, he had made some critical mistakes. Pilate hated the Jews and all things Jewish. 
and he delighted in antagonizing the Jews. But when word got to Rome of his hostilities, he was reprimanded. In fact, the governor's job was to keep the peace, not infuriate the locals. So when the Jews bring Jesus to Pilate, he's looking for ways to appease them. Then Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And this was the question that concerned Rome. Any local king would have been a threat to the Roman Empire. And Jesus answered and said to him, it is as you say. And the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. Now in 19 AD, the Romans had stripped the Jews of their right to capital punishment. This is why Jesus was brought to Pilate. Pilate alone could order an execution. The Jews leveled groundless accusations against Jesus. They wanted to convince Pilate that Jesus was an enemy of Rome's interests. But then Pilate asked him again, saying, Do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you. But Jesus still answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. See, Jesus answered Pilate, but he refused to dignify the accusers, his Jewish accusers, with a response. And it was his composure under pressure, among other things. Jesus' refusal to be manipulated by the Jews, this impressed Pilate. It's obvious from the other three Gospels that Pilate believed Jesus was innocent. Matthew 27 verse 19 tells us it was Pilate's wife who was warned in a dream that Pilate should have nothing to do with condemning Jesus. This is why Pilate sent Jesus to Herod. He tried passing the buck, hoping Herod would acquit him. Pilate may have thought angering the priest might cost him his job. Thus, he's looking for a way to let Jesus go without creating more tension with the priests. And this is what he does in verse 6. Now, at the feast, he was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. This was Rome's attempt to honor the feast and create goodwill with the Jews. Release a prisoner. And there was one named Barabbas who was chained with his fellow rebels. They had committed murder in the rebellion. Barabbas was a militant. He was a member of a Jewish militia whose goal was to wreak havoc against Rome. And of course, his actions had put the common people in harm's way. This is why Pilate, in his wildest imagination, couldn't imagine them wanting to release Barabbas. But then the multitude, crying out, began to ask him to do just as he had always done for them. But Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priest had handed him over because of envy. Pilate knew he was being manipulated by jealous priests. For some reason, Pilate knew that Jesus had crossed the Jewish hierarchy and they were now trying to use Rome to eliminate a rival. Pilate thought the common people would never agree with the priests. But verse 11, but the chief priest stirred up the crowd so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. Pilate answered and said to them again, What then do you want me to do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, Crucify him. Then Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? Pilate's sense of Roman justice tugged at him. He didn't want to see an innocent man die. Pilate could have been a hero here, understand. He could have done a brave deed. But in the end, 
He was more political than he was principled. Tragically, Pilate sacrificed the truth to cater to the Jewish leaders. He cared more about the political consequences of his actions than their morality. Pilate tried to squirm out of the situation instead of taking a stand. And listen, squirming and standing are always poles apart. Verse 14 continues, but they cried out all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them. And he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. Matthew chapter 27 verse 24 tells us, Pilate took water and washed his hands before the multitude saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. He tried to wash his hands of the whole ugly affair. He tried to disavow any responsibility in Jesus' death, but it didn't work. It's interesting, shortly after Jesus' crucifixion, Pilate was removed from office. He was sent back to Rome. The church historian Eusebius records that his life eventually fell apart, that in Rome, Pilate ended up committing suicide. He kept his job by selling out Jesus. But in the end, he not only lost his job, he lost his very life. Which reminds me of Jesus' words, whoever desires to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Never was that truer than with this man Pilate. You know, it's ironic that every Sunday in churches all over the world, believers quote what we call the Apostles' Creed. And in it is the line, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified. It's interesting to me that the creed memorializes the responsibility that Pilate tried to escape. The fact is, none of us can sidestep our responsibility in the death of Jesus. For it wasn't just Pilate that sent Jesus to the cross. It was you. It was me. It was our sin that sent Jesus to the cross. Again, verse 15. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. The Roman scourging was nicknamed the halfway death. For many victims never survived the brutality. The scourge, or the flagellum, consisted of a dozen or so leather strips attached to a handle. A lead ball was woven into the ends of the cords. Shards of glass or metal were embedded between the lead and the handle. The victim was then tied by the wrist and dangled over a post about a foot off the ground. The scourging consisted of 39 lashes with this flagellum. The initial blows caused welts on the shoulders and the back. By the seventh or eighth blow, the glass and the metal had opened up the skin, had begun to churn up the muscles. By the end of the ordeal, the victim's back had the texture of hamburger meat. Internal organs were often exposed. Finally, the victim was cut down, and his body hit the pavement in a puddle of his own blood and urine. In history's most important trial, 
There is no shortage of jurors. For every man and woman, every boy and girl sits in the jury box to cast a vote in this case of Jesus Christ. For the question that Pilate asked the Jews is the question that every single human being will one day answer. What then do you want me to do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? And you see, Pilate proves that there is no middle ground, that no one can ever wash their hands of Jesus. For every one of us will either bow our knee or bow our neck. What will you do with the Savior?